This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Greg, I know this is a big question, but if I had to press you, what would you say are the two most important medical advances that humans have ever come up with? Medical. Uh, antibiotics. 100%. We no did question. a super fun episode on that last season. If you haven't caught it, you should go check it out. Second one. Wow. Yeah. Okay. There's lots of ways you could go with this. Do you go kind of prolonging life? Do you mm. go with medical care? So mm-hmm. something like a pacemaker? Mm, that's a good one. Um, I hadn't thought about that. Or a form of surgery or a life support machine. I'm thinking even bigger. Don't even think about like treating an illness. What's something that improves quality of life? Maybe even has huge ramifications in the social and cultural spheres of our lives. Okay. I'm thinking about something else that would have had a big impact Are you thinking birth control? Yes, sir, I am. I am talking specifically about the oral hormonal contraceptive pill. Uh This is probably the point at which I should let our listeners know that we will be discussing sex, reproductive anatomy, and reproductive health in some detail in this episode. So if you do listen to this podcast with children, you may want to listen to this episode by yourself first, just to see if you're okay with your kids to listen to it too. Let's talk about sex, baby. (laughs) I was waiting for you to bring that in. I've had that song stuck in my head the entire time I was writing this episode. And one of our experts for today, though, Greg, would actually have a bone to pick with you about this because you just said... Uh Uh-oh, already. Birth control which I say all the time. It's how I refer to it. And she has something pretty funny to say about that. So I think in the 1920s, everybody called it birth control. And that's probably because they thought it was good to have control over women. But it's not a term that we've used in the UK for many, many years. It is still used in the United States of America. And every time I hear it, I cringe. That's Dr. Anna Glazier. She's an OBGYN and an honorary professor at both the University of Edinburgh and at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which is where I'm currently studying. Apologies, Dr. Glazier. <laughs> I know. Um, I felt so else? embarrassed okay, the rest I'll, of our interview. I will stop using birth control. I'm so what should we use then? I'm definitely going to slip up and probably call it birth control several times throughout this episode. That's totally fine. The term we typically use now is contraception. Uh, yeah, that makes more sense. Makes sense. And it's actually pretty funny that we're even having this discussion today about birth control versus contraception, because that's really pretty representative of the whole discussion around who controls what when it comes to reproduction that we've been having since the dawn of time. And today, Greg, we are going to learn how contraception went from using crocodile dung as spermicide to the modern methods that we have today and what we might have in the future. What is the science and the history behind the modern oral contraceptive pill? And how has this development changed and shaped the world? Oh, this is going to be so good. But first, welcome back to surprisingly brilliant this is a science history podcast from seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries ideas and people i am greg foot and i'm Marin hunsberger and i'm the storyteller for this episode which means that greg doesn't know what's about to hit him crocodile dung apparently <laughs> <laughs> For this episode, I also spoke to Professor Linda Gordon. She's a professor of history at New York University and a scholar of feminism. In every ancient society that has been studied by anthropologists or historians, people always try to control their fertility because children are an obligation, they're an expense. It's too important a thing to be left to chance. Also, 
Children are a huge amount of time, focus, huge risk, resources, and to be able to influence and have power over have when one creates one or not. Have autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kids change your life forever. And it's pretty important to be able to decide when and how you'd like to have them. So as long as there has been an understanding of how one makes babies, there have also been attempts to have control over that process. The oldest is probably what we call coitus interruptus, which is a very fancy way of saying the pullout method. But people were always looking for something better, something more accurate, something more guaranteed to prevent pregnancy. And there were some societies that actually had not terrible, not great by our standards, but not terrible forms of contraception. One of the most famous was the use of sponges, natural sponges that you would find in the sea. And if you shove them in the vagina in such a way that they block the entrance of the uterus, you can't get pregnant. And furthermore, then they discovered that you could use certain very natural ways to treat those sponges. So for example, lemon juice turns out to be a natural killer of sperm. There's also an ancient Egyptian document that dates back to 1850 BCE before Common Era. It's actually the first written record of spermicide use, and it describes a physical mass of fermented dough embedded with crocodile dung, which may have had some kind of spermicidal effect. And so all of these items that were put inside the vagina to prevent pregnancy, these are commonly called pessaries. And I'm going to show you a picture of one, Greg. Okay, hang on, hang on, pause. Lemon juice on a sponge or fermented dough with crocodile dung in it. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, pass me the pessary. Okay, I can just see uh, what essentially looks like a donut. Yep. But it looks like it's harder and green. It's made out of bronze. So you put a bronze donut? Yep. Inside the vagina? You do. And this one dates back to about 200 to 400 CE. Is that because the bronze does something to the sperm or is it just a blockage? It's mostly just a physical barrier. And just like those sponges that Linda mentioned, these are the earliest examples of what we call a barrier method of contraception. The modern version would be like a vaginal diaphragm. A condom is also a barrier method of contraception. And this is all stuff that physically tries to keep sperm out of the uterus. And as time goes on, we do get better at making these than a bronze donut or a crocodile dung, which is very good to hear. People start using barriers made out of animal skin or animal gut, often still used inside the vagina, really early precursor to the diaphragm. We also see the rise of condoms made out of materials like this. There are condoms made out of things like linen or oiled paper. And all of these are made to be reusable, by the way, so you can oh. just imagine the hygiene implications. But because this issue is really so important, especially in cultures where sex and having babies out of wedlock is like hugely shameful and forbidden and could ruin your life. There have also been all kinds of herbal tinctures or magical spells that people use to try not to become pregnant all throughout history. And then in the 1850s, what comes along but the vulcanization of rubber? Ah. And I think people usually think of this primarily in terms of like- Star Trek. Industry. Oh no, sorry. You're so close, Greg, <laughs> except you're As a galaxy a Vulcan, far, Vulcan far joke. away. Oh, okay. You went into Star Wars, Star Wars after Star Trek. Okay. Star Wars over Star Trek. I'll say it every time. But vulcanization of rubber was huge for contraceptive effectiveness because condoms and diaphragms start to be made out of rubber, making them much better at preventing pregnancy, but still as Linda puts it. Especially given that there were a lot of families in which they were relying on men to use condoms and that condoms were not perfect. And also you have to be able to trust the guy to use the condom. Yeah, that's that's the thing. When you're talking about condoms, it's like, 
who has the control, I guess, or the responsibility. Who has access to the contraceptive. You know, it's the person with the penis whose job it is to make sure it's on and it stays on. And in the latter half of the 1800s, this all really comes to a boil because we have this terrible mix. It's the era of industrialization meeting extremely repressive sexual and moral politics. Industrialization gives rise to even more class inequality at a terrible pace. And so we get this huge boom of incredibly poor people living in cities without access to education or healthcare. And on top of that, we have this ridiculous rise in moral politics, especially around sex. You begin to have a very kind of repressive notion about what was acceptable to talk about and what was indecent. I'll give you an extreme example. There were families in which you were not allowed to say if you were eating chicken that you wanted breast meat because breast was an obscene term. Whoa, so what would you say? Pass me the bit between the above the leg and next to the wing and <laughs> Dude, I have no idea how you, cir- how you circumnavigate that. <laughs> Plenty of young women, even women at the edge of becoming married, did not know what sexual intercourse was. And even some of them did not know how you got pregnant, where babies came from. It casts a light on, you know, there's a conversation to be had around the state of our sex education right now, but at least there is some sense of education around it. Totally. And if you can imagine that talking about chicken breast meat was scandalous. I know, right? Gets you all flustered. Talking about sex and preventing pregnancy is like totally off the table. And this repressive ideology gets so bad, Greg, that in 1873, the United States Congress passes the Comstock Act, which makes a whole bunch of things basically illegal, things like sex toys, any content of a sexual nature in private correspondence between private individuals and you will never guess contraception made illegal this is kind of height of victorian era yeah totally where i mean we know that there are kind of like nudie cards right and and this is like a real taboo subject but to say that you're not even allowed to talk about those things how is anyone going to learn it's literally illegal to disseminate any information about contraception and of course this worsens the pre-existing class divide especially in reproductive health there was a class double standard well-to-do women could either travel to europe and get a pessary or they could have a private physician. Most poor people did not have access to private physicians and they could get a private physician who knew it was against the law, but you know, this was a private thing between the doctor and the client. Was there a black market for pessaries? Big time. Yeah, I mean, as with any activity that is deemed illicit and made illegal, this obscenity, as the Comstock Act puts it, it makes obscene things illegal like contraception. These things don't go away. They just become harder to get, more dangerous, less effective. And of course, as we see time and time again, a lack of access to contraception means skyrocketing abortion rates, as well as maternal and infant death. I'm assuming that was also illegal. Oh, 100%. Yes, completely. And of course, this is the kicker, Greg. This is really unfair. The access to contraception that is allowed is infuriating because men could still buy condoms in any drugstore and they were completely legal. Wow. And the reason that they were legal, this is kind of funny, for a very long time, and this was true well into the 1960s, a package of condoms said for prevention of disease only, because the idea was these can help you not have VD. But it was just telling you, oh, you're not supposed to use these as a form of birth control. But of course, people ignored it. But it was galling to women to understand that men had completely legal, easy access. And that, of course, means who's the person that can 
make the decision. Who has all the power? The only person who can buy the contraception.、And、the only person who doesn't have to carry the baby, <laughs> or maybe even deal with it after it's born. So the Comstock Act goes pretty unchallenged for many years as it's enacted. But as we move into the 1900s, someone comes along who will change the world forever. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that. And she's one of the main characters of our story. She begins life as Margaret Higgins, and she's born a working class girl and is the sixth of eleven children.、Oof. Yeah, that's a lot of kids. And she sees—that's the—that's the whole notion of this story, right? Exactly. Have access to the contraception, and it shapes her entire life. She sees firsthand what this does to her mother's health. Her mother dies quite young. And this is where it all starts for Margaret. She grows up. She gets an education. She becomes a nurse. She marries her first husband. He's an architect, and she becomes Margaret Sanger. She has children of her own, and they all move to New York City. And this is right before World War One. There's this flourishing radical Bohemian culture、oh, in New York. That's an amazing time right, to be in New York. Right, kind of a really fun swinging time. Do you mean swinging as in swing dance, or swinging in a sexual way? Both, but we will get to that. Okay. <laughs> The Sangers become this fixture of Bohemian New York society. Margaret joins the Liberal Club and the New York Socialist Party, and in 1912, she—this is so cool, Greg. She starts writing what is essentially a sex education column for a New York newspaper. It's titled "What Every Girl Should Know." Oh, I wanted to be called "Ask Auntie Margaret." <laughs> I was gonna say she's like the 19-teens yeah, Carrie Bradshaw kind of. She's like very Sex in the City gal, and of course, the Comstock Act is still in place. This is censored for being obscene, and she's like in trouble with the law. This is her first run-in, but she's also still working as a nurse. She's working among working-class families, and she's seeing these recurring problems of unwanted pregnancy, people dying in childbirth, getting seriously injured during abortions, lots of miscarriages, families who can't afford the children they're having, huge problems with no methods really of stopping any of this. So she's seen it when she was growing up. In her own family, from her mum, and now she's seeing it in her work as well. And she's, she's like, "This is really a thing that needs addressing." She's back in it, elbows deep. It's really important to her, and she starts what is essentially a crusade, a lifelong mission to make birth control accessible. After her column gets banned, she doesn't give up. She goes on to author a radical feminist monthly called *The Woman Rebel*. And I want you to read this excerpt, Greg. It's from *The Woman Rebel* in 1914. All right, here it comes. Here's the quote: "A woman's body belongs to herself alone. It is her body. It does not belong to the church. It does not belong to the United States of America or to any other government on the face of the earth. The first step towards getting life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for any woman is her decision whether or not she shall become a mother. Enforced motherhood is the most complete denial of a woman's right to life and liberty." As you can imagine. This is quite inflammatory. I mean, some of these ideas are still considered radical even in, in some、today. places in the world, in, and some, in some cultures, in some、yeah. more conservative circles, exactly. And for publishing *The Woman Rebel* in general, her publication, she's indicted for violating the obscenity laws. But does she get arrested? Does she go to jail? Does she make a daring escape? What does she do next? Oh, you're gonna tell me. All that and more. It's time. After this short break. How dare you? Cliffhanger. And we are back. You are listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and Margaret Sanger does indeed go on the lam after being indicted for obscenity. Greg, go on the what? On the lam? Do you not know that? The lam. Yeah, she she's like a baby sheep. No, it's just lam. She's on the run. 
oh, from okay. the law. She's an, she's an outlaw. <laughs> and she skips town under a false name and she heads to England. I love this. Her parting blow to the New York government is on her way out. She instructs her friends to release 100,000 copies of something called Family Limitation, which is her 16-page pamphlet that provides explicit instructions on the use of a variety of contraceptive methods that were available at the time. Fantastic. What I hope is that they kind of threw them off the top of skyscrapers That's and you what can I'm just picturing. imagine them all floating down to the street and people being like, what's this? <gasps> In the movie of Margaret's life, that's how it would go. But at the same time, that's really useful reading for anyone who gets their hands on it. Huge, huge. And it's just the start of Margaret's bigger impact on the world. So she heads to England, she separates from her first husband, and this is where we get a little swinging. She's over in Europe, she's mixing with revolutionary and scientific minds in Europe. She's exploring the latest psychology on the importance of female sexuality. She has an affair with H.G. Wells. No. The author of... War of the Wells. Exactly. <laughs> and she's often censored and even jailed in England, too, for distributing her pamphlet on family limitation. Whoa. She's a firecracker. Go, Margaret. Living it up. She does make it back to the U.S. She can't leave the U.S. alone. She says, I have to go back there and I have to make a difference. And once back in the U.S., she embarks on a nationwide tour to promote her ideas, and she is frequently arrested for I was it. Gonna, yeah, I was going to say, she must have been In and out of that. jail, all the time. Yep. She eventually returns to Brooklyn in 1916, and she opens the nation's first ever family planning clinic. She advertises the opening of the clinic with pamphlets in English, Yiddish, and Italian to appeal to all the neighborhoods. And the headline on these pamphlets is, Mothers! Can you afford to have a large family? Do you want any more children? If not, why do you have them? Do not kill, do not take life, but prevent. Safe, harmless information can be obtained at 46 Amboy Street. Brilliant. Pretty good. What I'm surprised about is I think it was the Greeks who had the whole prevention rather than cure. And when do we lose that? Like, when do we lose this sense of the power of prevention? Such a good question, Greg. I feel like this is all really wrapped up in this whole conversation around sex and sexuality and morality and goodness and this more like puritanical or Victorian ideal about bodies and sex and sexuality. Here's what Linda has to say about the opening day of Margaret's clinic. The first day that it opened, there was a line around the block. In other words, it's just no doubt that once women heard about this possibility, and they weren't even sure what it was, they would come. Before that, the main thing that women had to rely on was abortion. Abortion was very, very commonplace. And, you know, historically, people get confused about this. But in fact, legalizing contraception was what reduced the abortion rate, because obviously it's a much preferable and much easier and less risky form of birth control. It's great to hear about the lines around the block. But what I was thinking is, could that be seen as shameful? in you know some of those cultures to be seen in that queue and what was the legality of that you know was it illegal for those people to go into the family planning clinic i'm so glad you asked greg because i was about to say what do you think happens to the clinic just nine days after it opens oh, definitely closed down closed down margaret gets thrown in jail once again but she is smart and she is using all of this publicity to essentially run a pr campaign <laughs> and she's leveraging it. She starts to amass supporters among wealthier folks in the city, and she even marries one of them. He's an oil magnet, and he becomes the main 
money behind the throne, so to speak, for this, what is coming to be known as, in this period, the birth controller movement. He's the fat cat behind the birth control. <laughs> He's actually really sweet. He calls her my greatest adventure. Oh, that's sweet. I know. Love that. I know. I'm so glad that he, like, accepts her and lets her rile up the world because she never gives up. She lobbies and she appeals. And it seems to me that she takes a leaf out of the book that I told you about earlier. You remember when I was saying that condoms were legal for men for the prevention of disease, right? A medical thing as opposed to being labeled as a contraception. Yeah. Well, Margaret gets around the obscenity laws by getting the New York state government to eventually agree to a loophole. New York makes physicians exempt from the laws that prohibit dissemination of contraceptive information if prescribed for medical reasons. Ah, fantastic. <laughs> so if everyone can come up with a reason, if their physician can say that they need it for a medical reason, then anyone can get access to it. So she needs to get a physician into the family planning clinic. Exactly. So she takes advantage of this and she opens a legal doctor-run birth control clinic in 1923. And I want to show you a picture from one of her publications around this time, Greg. Well, that is a powerful image. Okay, so this is from the Birth Control Review, edited by Margaret Sanger, November 1923. $2 a year, 20 cents a copy. But the picture here is a lady lying on the floor with her ankle shackled to a big heavy ball, right? The kind of classic shackles that you see in jail. And on the ball, it says, unwanted babies thus suggesting that unwanted babies will be the shackle to your life. It's a really arresting image. And to be honest, it's very representative of the actual predicament of the time. I mean, if you're a person who can get pregnant and you have no other recourse, like what's going to happen to you if you just have to keep having babies? You can't go to work. You can't continue to get an education. You have no life outside of the home. Your body may be destroyed if you have no other option but just to keep having children. Yeah. So therefore, anytime you have sex, it is a risk of this shackle being clasped onto your ankle. Exactly. At the bottom there it says, official organ of, which makes me chuckle, <laughs> official organ of the American Birth Control League. Is that what she's calling herself now? It has a couple of different names uh, and it changes as it evolves and it expands into other branches. Um, it becomes commonly known as the Birth Control Clinical Research Bureau. It serves as a model for other clinics uh, around the state and elsewhere in the country. It becomes a center for the collection of critical clinical data on the effectiveness of contraceptives. We're starting to see research into this. The clinic does eventually change its name to the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, ah. which is actually still what it's called today, but we just commonly refer to it as Planned Parenthood. And it is still the most accessible and most widespread provider of affordable reproductive health care and education in the United States. So the birth of that was the start of the 1900s. Margaret Sanger. Now, Margaret knows that the methods currently in place that she's offering, these barrier methods like diaphragms and condoms or spermicides, they're not perfect and they're not as good as they could be. And she will be in dogged pursuit of something better for the rest of her entire life. But it'll be a couple of decades before she can bring a scientist on board who dares to work with her on something bigger. That's just a little tease for you. Right, that's going to be someone who's willing to essentially come up with a chemical way of providing contraception. You got it, my dude. But before we even venture there, we do have to address something. These are all incredible accomplishments. We're holding Margaret Sanger up in this, you know, vaulted place. But all of this does come at a cost. Margaret is an intellectual and a radical and a science-minded person now mingling in elite social circles in the 1920s and 30s. And one of the prevailing belief systems in this context in this time period is... 
eugenics? Yeah. Ah, yeah, where they don't want people to be having babies because they want to stop particular traits in their tracks. So you can see how this all gets mixed up, right? But you'd think they would be for contraception. No, they are. Right. But that's the problem. Right. Here's Linda. And so what you had, for example, as a very, very unpleasant part of American history was a period in the 20s and 30s in which so-called, quote, feeble-minded women were being sterilized against their will. But in fact, the story of those women was not that there was anything wrong with their brain. It was there was something wrong with their economic situation that didn't allow them to have access to education. But given the nature of America, this eugenics began to be used in a very racialized way, and it went along with the development of a new immigration policy in the United States, which branded certain groups of people superior and certain groups of people inferior. Oh, crikey, this feels like they're getting hit from both ends of a spectrum here. On one end, there's no access to the contraception that they would like, but then on the other end, there's this enforced sterilization that they don't want because they do want to be able to have kids. Exactly. So we have coercion versus access to healthcare. It's all a big... It's a mess. Yeah, it's a big jumble. And our expert Linda Gordon, who you just heard there, is actually the first historian to really write and be critical of Margaret Sanger's alliance with eugenicists. See, many of Margaret's defendants say that she just allied herself with the eugenicists in order to broaden the base of people who supported birth control. But there's also some pretty damning evidence in Margaret's own words from her publications and letters that she wrote that she was pretty staunchly in support of sterilizing those who were, in the parlance of their times, feeble-minded. She had prominent eugenicists on the board of her clinic and writing for her publications, and it's hotly debated, even currently, whether she was dedicated to the racial view of the eugenics movement as well. Because she opened a clinic in Harlem. She worked really closely with black leaders to reach black communities in the rural South, and she insisted that these outreach and education programs not be run by white medical men, in her own words. And she thought that these projects should be led by those who were entrenched in those communities, such as a trusted church minister. And I mention this specifically because there is a now notorious letter that is brought up over and over and over again in criticism of Margaret that she sent to a colleague about these projects that I'm mentioning, and it reads, We do not want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the black population, and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Oh, so she says, we do not want the word to get out that we do want. See, that's the area of contention. Is she saying we don't want people to know that we want this, or is she saying we don't want people to misunderstand our mission and think that we want this? People don't know. I mean, regardless, she, you know, I was under the impression that what she was doing was empowering people Mm. to have access to contraception if they wanted it in a world where they couldn't get it. But this alliance also suggests that she wants to do the opposite of that and take away people's ability or their rights to have kids if they want to have them. Absolutely. Who gets to play God? Who gets to decide who has that power? Is it someone like Margaret, a wealthy white woman? Is she the only one who gets to decide who has the power? Or does every individual, no matter their circumstance, get to decide for themselves? Yeah, that's what you'd want. So regardless of what we think she meant in this specific letter, the fact remains that we definitely have proof that she was an ardent member of the eugenics movement when it came to non-racial topics. And within the context of the times, 
there were a lot of things going on within her organizations that weren't considered racist at the time that would be considered horribly racist today, like a separate department to oversee the treatment of black patients. She was an obsessive about one issue. As time went on, she became more and more and more obsessive about birth control to the neglect of a lot of other issues. And that fact led her to make some alliances that I know that her successors very much regretted and wish she hadn't made. So I think we can admire Margaret for her tenacity and the sheer force of her will to make so much change around contraception and education around sex and sexuality. But we also have to recognize that she is a deeply flawed character as well. Yeah, noted. But she continues her work. She continues fighting for the expansion of access to contraception and reproductive health care, and she's always looking for some method that's better than what they currently have. Yeah, because I'm guessing that right now, what do we talk? Condoms are 98 or 99 percent. Uh, when used correctly. Successful, when used correctly. But I'm guessing that uh, the vulcanized rubber or the waxed paper or whatever they're using by this time is going to be far less successful than that when used correctly but they're not being taught how to use it correctly. So yeah, she is probably also always looking for the better, safer contraception. Totally. I don't have the exact numbers on the effectiveness of rubber contraceptives at this point, but we can definitely say that they're not as effective as the ones we have today for sure, just in terms of even like rubber technology. And then again, we have the issue of, is anybody teaching them how to put it on Mm. properly? Question mark. Are they doing the cucumber thing? (laughs) Or the banana Definitely thing. not in schools in the 20s. <laughs> now, remember, she opened her first illegal contraceptive clinic in 1916. And she keeps doing all of this work until we come to our other crucial crux moment in 1950. Gosh, over 30 years later. Yeah, two world wars. Wow. Can you believe? She's, she's dedicated. But before we get to 1950, as Margaret is chipping away at getting other methods of contraception to be available... All throughout the 20s and 30s and 40s, the scientific world is also booming with innovation around reproductive science. And what's happening in culture and society? Like, is that still that that view of obscenity being banned, illegal? We're definitely evolving. Things are getting more risque through the, you know, wild swinging 20s and the war changes things culturally. People start to admit more often that they're having premarital sex on surveys. So things are getting a little more bold in their subversion, let's say, but there still is this overarching idea of repression. We do still have contraceptives being illegal or at least heavily regulated in a lot of different U.S. states especially. Right. In 1929, two different teams, one in in Japan, one in Austria, figured out what ovulation is and key when it occurs. 1929. Yeah, that had it not late. been identified before that. So there's evidence that for at least some people in some cultures, there is an awareness that at certain points in a menstrual cycle, you are more fertile or less fertile, more likely to get pregnant or less likely to get pregnant. But we have no idea why. It's not widespread knowledge. And when it does start to become recommended by family doctors, they're actually wrong about when they're recommending people have sex to prevent pregnancy. Wrong place in the cycle. Yes, they're actually recommending the point when someone is most fertile. So that's inconvenient. Oh gosh. So it wasn't until 1929 that they understood about ovaries and eggs. Exactly. And it kicks off this whole chain of, okay, now that we understand what ovulation is, we know that eggs have to be involved for pregnancy. How can we interrupt that cycle? 
So in the 30s, a paper is published called The Effect of Progestin and Progesterone on Ovulation in the Rabbit. And these scientists are the first ever to report that injecting progesterone prevents ovulation in rabbits. Not that type of rabbit. Not that kind of rabbit, Greg. Biological rabbits. Test rabbits. And we should just say what progesterone is. Uh, I know it's a hormone. Yep. Uh, I don't know much more than that. Okay, awesome. I was hoping we would get into this. So progesterone is a sex hormone. It's produced by ovaries and it essentially preps the uterus for the implantation of an embryo. So it's like your ovary releases an egg and the lining gets thicker or something? Yeah, yeah, the progesterone level goes up and tells your body, okay, get ready for baby, hooray. And then if there is implantation of a fetus because the egg and sperm have met, then you're, you're pregnant, hooray. And if not, then you have a period and your body lets the egg go and your progesterone levels go down. So the key part is that progesterone plays a role in this ovulation and shedding cycle. It's released from your ovaries and it's different from that word progestin that was in the title of the paper. Progesterone is the hormone produced naturally by your body. Progestin is the synthetic version. Okay, hang on. So progesterone tells the body to prepare for a, an egg to implant. So why would injecting progesterone or progesterin stop an egg being released? Excellent question. And Anna has the answer. It works by preventing ovulation. In order to get pregnant, you need an egg, a sperm. The two have to be able to meet and then make their way to the uterus where the fertilized egg will implant. So different contraceptive methods act at different points in that chain, as it were. The combined oral contraceptive pill primarily acts by preventing ovulation. So this is a little counterintuitive, but essentially, if you inject progesterone, it tells your body that you have an implanted egg. Your uterus is like, oh, hooray, we're pregnant. Gotcha. We're done. So don't release another one. Exactly. And in 1934, Something even more wild happens, and a young scientist at Harvard announces to the National Academy of Sciences that he has fertilized rabbit eggs in a test tube and transplanted them into a host mother, which then had baby rabbits. Is that IVF? Is that the first IVF? Essentially, yes. And it's really radical at the time. In a grant application, he writes that he wants to work on such in vitro methods for humans. And this really freaks a lot of people out. This is the headline for a New York Times article about him and his work. And I'm going to have you read it. Okay, here it is. Rabbits born in glass. Haldane Huxley fantasy made real by Harvard biologists. You can see why they'd be freaked out about that, because they would see it as unnatural and playing God. And, you know, lots of these things that often come up in this podcast. Big time. And there's also this even more inflammatory way of looking at it. Some journalists cover this news by saying that this scientist is trying to invoke a manless world. So we see this sort of insecurity creeping in around sex and fertility medicine around like, OK, well, where would the place be for traditional gender roles if somebody's going to take my place as the inseminator? And it's the scientist. And that scientist's name was Gregory Pincus. He's got a great first name. <laughs> I was actually going to say... And to be honest, his second name is pretty fun as well. It's pretty good. And I'm actually going to refer to him as Pincus throughout the episode so we don't get confused between you this and this guy. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Pincus is a little bit of an odd character. He's described as looking a little bit like a cross between Groucho Marx and Albert Einstein. He's subscribing to these more liberal mores of the time in terms of sexuality. This is the era of the 
40s and 50s, Kinsey is doing studies into human sexuality, and it's becoming definitely still taboo, but more coming to the surface that people like to have sex just to have sex, and women like to have sex too. Yeah, it's not just because they want to make a baby or not. Wild. It can be fun. Yeah, <laughs> surprise! And after this research, Pincus actually becomes a little bit of a pariah in the academic community. Maybe because of this anxiety around this kind of freaky science, some people compare him to Dr. Frankenstein. It's also potentially exacerbated by the fact that he's Jewish, and he does experience some anti-Semitic coverage of him and his work in the media. So he leaves Harvard after these experiments, and he starts his own research institute, mostly because no other university will hire him. Why did no one want to hire him when he's doing, like, really forward-thinking IVF, essentially, for rabbits with a view to doing it for humans? Too freaky, too wild, too boundary-pushing, too much pushback, still a lot of hang-ups around sex. Blimey. He's joined in his efforts at his own institute by M.C. Chang, who is a Chinese scientist who does incredible work into sperm motility and injecting synthetic sex hormones to see if they affect ovulation. He's a really incredible scientist, and he publishes prolifically on the subject of human reproduction throughout his lifetime. He continues working with Pincus, and modern IVF treatments, Greg, are based on Chang's work still. Amazing. Gosh, there are a lot of people who owe their thanks then to, uh, to Chang and everyone who came after. Hugely. And we don't talk about Chang a lot in this story, typically, and I'm going to tell you why. But next in the story comes 1950. You remember, this oh, is our... This is, this is what we've been working up to. This, this is, is our the pivotal moment. <laughs> some could say, of this story. <laughs> you had to get that in somewhere. We had to. <laughs> Hopefully we have adequate story contraception on board. <laughs> no one is quite positive how Margaret and Pincus meet. Some say it's at a dinner party, but at this point, Margaret is in her 70s, and she is still obsessed with finding a better method of contraception. Her husband has died, he has left her his fortune, and she pitches Pincus. She wants him to make an effective birth control that would put all of the power in the hands of the person at risk of becoming pregnant. And she wants it to be a pill. Here's Linda Gordon. So she understood that one of the advantages of a pill is that you do not have to be anywhere near sexual activity before you take it. Furthermore, it was very discreet. You got this little tiny packet of pills, you slid it in your purse or in your drawer or wherever. No one had to know that you were taking it. It was a way to protect women's privacy and really to give them the power. If you have the pills, you decide. There it is. If you have the pills, you decide. Yeah. No good. one even has to know you're taking it. Uh, you don't have to explain it. You don't have to request that somebody else has the contraception. Game changer. Exactly. In the moment, you don't have to do anything to prevent pregnancy because you've been doing it by yourself on your own terms, even way before the moment of having sex. So the pill is what they want for convenience, for control. And this is a big freaking deal to embark on this journey to try and find it. 30 states still have anti-birth control laws in place. How would they test it in humans? Who would agree to manufacture it. And you can't test that on a rabbit because it's different hormones. You really gotta, you gotta get it into people to figure mm. out what's gonna happen. This is also the first ever medication that is meant to be given to healthy people. So instead of treating a sickness, it's preventative, it's preventing a condition, and it's a medication that you have to take every day. We should take pause on that. The first medication to give to healthy people. I mean, in our modern pharmaceuticalized era, 
in Western medicine. Yeah. Still a um, change of direction in the right direction, but you know, it's different. Exactly. And this big question, how would society, especially men, react to this? Oh, I bet they think, hang on, we don't have the control now. You're not allowed to do this. You may be surprised. I'll tell you about this in a sec. But Sanger pleads with Pincus and Chang because they're not strangers to doing daring stuff, right? They've pushed boundaries before with this... Wrap it in a glass. Wrap it in a glass. And as one colleague of theirs puts it, not only were these two scientists incredibly passionate about their field, but they kind of had nothing to lose. So they take on the project. And initially they perform lots more experiments in rabbits, injecting progesterone into them, seeing that when it's injected, the rabbits don't ovulate. They transition into rats. They're finding out all sorts of things about dose and how long these effects last. And Margaret is kind of on their case about getting something to work. She's cracking the whip. Big time. And this is where another power behind the throne steps in. Catherine McCormick is an heiress to the McCormick Spice Fortune. Sure. Do you guys have McCormick here? I don't believe it's so. It's like the name brand of all spices in American grocery stores. And I, I see that name and I'm like, holy moly, the McCormick Empire. She becomes the richest woman in America after her husband dies in 1947. And she is an ardent feminist. And she gets in touch with Margaret Sanger and asks her, where would my money be most useful in our continued universal fight for access to birth control? Brilliant. With all my many millions of dollars. And Margaret says, these guys. Bet on these guys. Pincus and Chang. Pincus and Chang. Now, they end up recruiting another doctor because they have a problem. Pincus is Jewish and somewhat ostracized from the scientific community. Chang is a Chinese immigrant, and they're already working on something really controversial. So they need some help. They recruit John Rock, who an author I read for this episode describes as a doctor out of Hollywood central casting. He's incredibly handsome. He's a He's family. He's name, isn't he? Big time. He's like Rock Hudson, right? Yeah. He's like solid, stable. We love John Rock. He's a well-beloved family doctor. He specializes in fertility. And so importantly, Greg, he's Catholic. So you can just be like, okay, tick, tick, tick. What's Rock Hudson doing? Well, sorry, what's John Rock doing? He's doing good stuff. <laughs> he's a mistake. Rock Hudson's being in films. And this Rock is their ticket to more acceptance by mainstream science and by just Catholic people in the general public. Because at this point, the church, in their interpretation of the Bible, they have decided that sex without any intention to procreate is a sin. Gosh, so that means that, all right, hang on. So is Rock Hudson, no, is John Rock... <laughs> Um, there to give them uh, credibility, legitimacy, but he can't say anything publicly because no, he does. He, he does. is so on board. He. This is what makes it a real game changer. He is a devoutly Catholic man, and he is very firm, very publicly about contraception being a positive thing for individuals, families, health, and happiness. Good on him. So he's going against the church. Yes, and this is huge for their image as a team, and was actually probably pretty pivotal in getting a manufacturing company on board during this whole journey. Could they not have used the spice lady? <laughs> like she's got the network. She's got distribution. I think she also probably helped. They taste great. They needed her money a big time. Now to come back to your question about men and control, and I just mentioned the church, the church being so outspoken. 
Linda was telling me there's often this misconception that it's men in general who are against birth control, but that's actually pretty far from the truth. Most married women in the labor force, their whole family was depending in part on their earnings. Okay, gotcha. So men also want women to be able to work uh, so they therefore would be pro birth control. Totally. And as you said before, like men also want to be able to have sex with their wives without potentially producing another child. Like both parties win here. Yep. So really, in, in terms of the general public, it's really just fundamentalist religious sects and largely the Catholic Church and sexually repressive societal norms in general that are really hardcore against contraception. Anyway, back to our handsome doctor, John Rock. Originally, he's treating infertility in families. He would give rounds of estrogen and progesterone to women who were struggling to get pregnant. This would essentially induce like what they called a pseudo-pregnancy in the woman. Then you'd stop those hormones, let it all flush out, and see if that kind of like reset everything and got her body ready to actually get pregnant. Estrogen being the other sex hormone alongside progesterone. Involved in like pregnancy and prepping the body for pregnancy, yep. etc. Exactly. And Pincus is watching John Rock do this. He's giving doses of hormones to his patients. And as all of the sources put it, nobody gets sick and nobody dies. And that's pretty great news. This is essentially our first human trial of injecting estrogen and progesterone. And Pincus sees this as, okay, okay, we can all move on together and see if we can use this to prevent pregnancy in human people. And we start to see the beginnings of a pretty egregious trend here. Pincus, Chang, and... Rock. <laughs> Pincus, Chang, and Rock. They administered this treatment to women in Rock's resident hospital, and the women didn't know it was being tested to become a birth control pill. Uh, they were in the hospital being treated for, like, some other illness. Oh, come on. And they were asked if they wanted to try a trial drug. Oh, that goes back to the Margaret Sanger days of looking to help people, but at the same time kind of doing the wrong thing. Making decisions for them. Exactly. I mean, these people are not giving informed consent by any means. They're not compensated for their time. Nearly half of the participants in this trial drug drop out because it makes them so nauseous. And this is all just the beginnings of what would become one of the most controversial field trials in the history of drug development. But I will tell you all about that right after we take a quick break. And we're back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. And the year is 1955 that we're talking about. Margaret Sanger and Catherine McCormick, the big fancy rich ladies who are funding and supporting all of this work, they are really pushing the researchers hard because they want to be able to make a big announcement to the world that they've created the first ever birth control pill. Especially Margaret, because she's getting pretty old and she's been working on this her whole life. But Pincus and his team haven't tested it on nearly enough people, and they haven't even gotten the dosage down. Hang on, question. You said earlier that Pincus and Chang were injecting progesterone, and that would stop an egg being released, essentially therefore meaning that someone couldn't get pregnant, right? So if they're looking to make a birth control pill, are they essentially just trying to work out how much progesterone they need to put in some edible complex to try to do the same thing? This is such a good question. I'm so glad you asked because up until these early experiments in humans that we're just talking about now in the mid-1950s, scientists had been using just straight up progesterone and estrogen, like the exact same biochemical compounds that are found in one's body, but people had also been working on producing synthetic 
progestin for years. And if you can believe it, this can actually be extracted and modified from root vegetables. This is where we get our first synthetic progestin hormone. It's pretty great. And the problem with using progesterone and what Pincus and Chang and Rock are finding in these early human trials is that in pill form, Mm. progesterone, so the the natural biological one from your body, when ingested, gets broken down by your stomach acid before it can get absorbed by your body to yep. do its job. Gotcha. So they need to find something else. They need to figure out what the solution is. The solution is progestin, the synthetic version, which can be made to be more potent, can survive the digestive process, and can do its systemic job, making your body think, oh, we're pregnant, don't release an egg. The whole road to synthetic progestin is its own whole rabbit hole if we're gonna stick to our (laughs) rabbit theme there's a whole bunch of guys who are all in competition to be the first one to invent progestin or find the best version or the most potent version there's one guy who claims that his version is the best and dubs himself the father of the pill but we're gonna leave that to the side (laughs) because it's a cheeky but it doesn't that isn't the one that takes off and it's complicated all right so pincus and co are feeling the pressure They want to get this tested in as many human people as they can. And they're trying to figure out where they're going to be able to do this really fast and with minimal objection from the people trying the drug. And they end up in Puerto Rico. They initially try to enlist prisoners at a women's prison, but the director of the prison says no. They then make the switch to an extremely poor slum where someone has directed them to this population because these women are supposedly desperate for a solution to family planning. Okay, so they know that this is happening. They know they're taking part in this trial. No. Once again, horrible decisions are made. And at the time, this was legal. You didn't have to inform patients that they were being considered as part of a clinical trial. They do tell the women that it's a drug that will prevent pregnancy, but not that it's experimental, not that it has potential side effects, or that it could be dangerous. Now, at this point, the medication that they're giving these women is extremely high doses of these hormones that we're talking about, estrogen and progestin, like way higher than we have in the oral hormonal contraceptive pill today. But it works. Which is good. But the side effects that these participants experience are pretty severe. Not good. We're talking like extreme nausea, abdominal pain, headaches, vomiting, dizziness. Over the course of several years, 1,500 participants are in this drug trial from some of the poorest areas of both Puerto Rico and Haiti. And Rock and Pincus are so excited that the pill works and so eager to get to the end of this process and be able to say we have a contraceptive pill that they're really quick to dismiss these side effects. They say they're mostly psychosomatic, where they're all in the person's well, they're head. they're not if there's a lot of people having them. Yeah, one would hope. Uh, and then they also justify it by saying it's a small price to pay for a contraceptive pill that works. And they make little to no effort to look into the root cause of these side effects or to ameliorate them in any way. That's the whole point of a trial, right? To spot these issues and then tackle them. Was there anyone uh, kind of speaking up against this? Yes, but not in the way you might think. Both uh, John Rock, the doctor, and Catherine McCormick, this big fancy donor lady, do take issue with the trial, but not for any ethical reasons. It's actually really indicative of this paternalistic supremacist attitude that they have. They're worried that the women aren't educated or intelligent enough to be able to take the pill properly. Right. And that's why they object to the trial. Not for any ethical reason at all. Oh, my word. This is such a mess. 
three women in these trials died. From taking the drug? No autopsies were conducted, so we don't know. We still don't know if their deaths were linked to the drug. But Pincus and his team breeze on by. And they trademark a pharmaceutical name for this drug, but Pincus just calls it the pill. And that's how we... And it's stuck. Yeah, how many of us still refer to it today? At this point, though, even after trademarking, Pincus knows he still doesn't have enough people who have tested the pill for it to be FDA approved. But he also knows there's not really a strict benchmark for FDA approval. And he does another not great thing, Greg. He exaggerates his studies. What? So and he hasn't changed anything since these nausea and headaches and other issues that have been reported. There have been minor, minor tweaks, but it has not been the priority. The priority has been getting this thing on the market. Side effects be darned. It's really tricky, right? Because some people could argue what they argued, which is like, it's a small price to pay. This is a thing that empowers you if you take it. It's right? better than the alternative, which is being pregnant when you don't want to be. Having the shackles of whatever that advert unwanted was. children plus technically what they're doing is legal i mean we disagree with it from an ethical perspective on various various points but this was permitted what they were doing maybe not exaggeration of numbers from a well, scientific actually, perspective this is also a loophole you're gonna laugh when i tell you this greg he pads his numbers hilarious because we're about to talk about menstrual cycles, by instead of referring to individual people in his study, he counts by menstrual cycle. And if a person's having multiple menstrual cycles, it looks like naively you could be like, oh, that's way more people. Yep. When you didn't even refer to people, you're just referring to menstrual cycles. Yeah, that's a loophole. So this works, and it works primarily because the manufacturing company applies for FDA approval of the pill not as a contraceptive, still controversial at this point in 1957, but instead as a medical treatment for menstrual disorders. Okay, yeah, so this um, echoes what was happening earlier, that if you could get your physician to say that you have a medical concern, you can you can get that contraception. And exactly the same is happening here. Exactly. So you've still, there's still a barrier to entry, which is you have to go to the doctor to get this prescribed, essentially. You hit the nail on the head, Greg. And after this comes out as a regular prescription that you can go to your doctor to get, people report record numbers of menstrual disorder to get the pill from their doctor. A Gallup poll around this time in 1960 starts to show that nearly three out of four people now believe that birth control should be available to anyone who wants it. The problem here as well is you're labeling it a disorder when it's not. It's, it's just a, a medicalization of a basic fundamental right. Yeah. So the pill is an absolute smash it. Within two years, more than a million American women are taking the pill, and by 1965, it's the most popular form of birth control in the United States. By a long shot, 6.5 million people are on the pill. It comes with a planning your family booklet, and I love this because it harkens back to our earlier image that we discussed. The instructional booklet has a Greek mythological figure of Andromeda on it who is being freed from her chains. Brilliant. Like Margaret Sanger's original um, image. Exactly. Great. Coming full circle. And this part might surprise you. Just a little fun fact sprinkled in here. Pincus, although he has trademarked the name for his pharmaceutical brand of the pill, has not pursued a patent for it. And he earns relatively little money from his invention. That is a surprise because he has been cutting corners and uh, finding loopholes and doing things that we would consider unethical to get here as fast as possible. You'd kind of think, oh, that's because he sees this as a huge 
cash cow, but actually this would suggest if he doesn't patent it, he doesn't want the money from it, he wants it to be copied essentially, you know, it's kind of like, hey, here's how I did it, like get involved. He's doing it for the cause and for the science. I think he really does believe in it. I think he really does believe it will make the world better. He just kind of has a warped view from what we've seen of the things he's willing to do to make it happen. And to ignore. Yeah. And Mm. who he's willing to Mm. ignore. And Margaret Sanger, I am delighted to say, does in fact live long enough to see the pill become incredibly popular and become legal. In 1965, there's a big court case. It becomes legal in all states. And apparently, from her bed in her nursing home as an extremely old lady, she says, I knew I was right. It was as simple as that. (laughs) I mean, it was anything but simple. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But what an incredible, like, arc of a life to have lived through that huge fundamental change. And have driven so much of it. Yeah, like obviously there are question marks over some of the things that she's aligned herself with along the way, but she really was the power, the engine, not just in that first phase, but also alongside McCormick, you know, throughout really that final phase. I know, I find myself actually being really happy that she got to see it come to fruition at the end of her life. But she also gets on my nerves a little bit for saying it was as simple as that because... It's really not simple from here on out. So when I first qualified in medicine, young women still found it difficult to make the case to get the pill because they weren't married. Those sorts of taboos have disappeared. And now I think people regard women who are not using contraception as being women who are irresponsible. Whereas 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, it was women who were using contraception who weren't married, who were irresponsible. So there's been a big change in society. And Linda, our other expert, actually also told me a story about how when she was a young woman in college in the 70s, she and her girlfriends would pass around a wedding ring so they could go to the clinic and a doctor would prescribe them birth control because he thought they were married. Wow. So there is still a real stigma, a real barrier to entry, even though it is there available. It's like, hey, if you're not married, why do you want this? Absolutely. What are you going to be doing with it? Having sex for fun? How dare you? And so much about these social taboos has gotten better and the medication itself has gotten a lot better. The doses have come way down. The side effects and their severity have lessened. But to a certain extent, some of these barriers to access still exist today. Here's Anna. And I think the added problem for contraception is that there's such a lot of morality and such a lot of politics surrounding issues of contraception. And so even now in a country like the UK, there's a whole bunch of people who don't think that contraception should be more easily available, that believe that if contraception is more easily available, then everybody will be promiscuous and take risks, and we'll have a huge number of unintended pregnancies, and the world will come to an end. And history shows that that just doesn't happen. But you're up against people's biases, people's unsubstantiated, non-evidence-based beliefs. Um, So there's an added dimension to contraception, which makes life much more difficult. Gosh, yeah, you said it earlier. You said that as the availability of contraception went up, the number of abortions went down. You know, there are lots of other positive knock-on effects about the empowerment and the availability of contraception. 
So what's next? Does it need to be improved further? Is there a male contraceptive pill on the way? Excellent questions. Since the pill, these ideas of hormonal contraceptives have really taken off, we have all kinds of technologies now. The implant, the patch, the shot, the intrauterine devices, both hormonal and non-hormonal. I can say with personal experience that none of them are great options, but we have this problem again of it works, so why make it better? We're making money off of it now, What's the impetus? What's the motivation for improvement? Kind of hearkening back to what Pincus and Rock say to those women in Puerto Rico and Haiti, suck it up and take it because it's better than being pregnant. Well, you've just said what the impetus is. It could be improved. We just need the money to do so and the people to work on it. Exactly. And the male birth control pill, great question. I'm pretty sure it's still in the works. We'll see where it goes. Mm. This is kind of our generation's version. Will society be accepting of it? Will people adopt it? Will there be a backlash? Will people use it? Mm. Will it be safe? Let's see. And I want to bring us all the way full circle with this. Because according to the WHO, 1.1 billion people around the world have a need for family planning. 270 million of those people have an unmet need for contraception, and that's disproportionately affecting communities of color and communities in the global south. And it is completely an unchallengeable fact that contraception and access to family planning and education truly saves lives and makes quality of life on earth better. And I think talking about the history of how birth control originally came about really helps highlight for us the inequalities and in many cases, white supremacist ideologies that have been woven through this story so far and how we haven't left them very far behind us. And we still need to be aware of them and actively fight against them today. And especially as we move forward into the future. Beautifully put. So as well as looking for improvements and alternatives in the future, we need to get what we've got out there. Precisely. And collaboration and open communication about where we're going in the future and why. So that was it, Greg. From crocodile dung pessaries to potential male birth control of the future, I think we've uh, covered quite a lot here today. Via lemon juicy sponges. Oh, it makes everything hurt inside me. I hate it so much. (laughs) Lemon juice sponge. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And thank you again to our fantastic experts we had on the show today, Dr. Anna Glazier and Professor Linda Gordon. If you want more information on them or the sources that we use to put together this episode, you can find all of that in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps spread the word. Thank you. And please tell your friends about Surprisingly Brilliant. Let anybody know who you think may enjoy this episode to check it out. More episodes are on their way, so subscribe to catch them. And if you've got a story from science history you'd like us to tell or a discovery or an invention you'd like to know the story behind you can email us brilliant at seeker.com and if you want to get in touch with us on social media my co-host is greg foot he is at greg foot on instagram and twitter and marin hunsberger is at marin hunsberger on twitter at marin b b e a on instagram surprisingly brilliant is a podcast from seeker and this episode was written by me marin hunsberger my co-host is greg foot and our producer for this episode was katarina kropshofer this episode was edited by lucas Bollinger. We had support from the team at Seeker, including Caroline Roth, Jessica Young, Megan Bates, and Megan Fu, and from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producers are me, Greg, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangish Hadakudur. And you can find out more about Seeker at seeker.com. We'll chat to you next time. Bye. <laughs>